welcome to the Mount Vigil Podcast. I'm Anthony. Today, Blaine and I begin a series of episodes on the story of God. We've talked about seeing reality as a story. We've talked about apocalypse or spiritual revelation as to the nature of that story. And in our endgame episode, we talked about what it's like at the end of the story. But exactly what story is it that we're in? Where does it begin and how did we get here? We argue that the place to begin in answering this question is with God. In doing so, we talk at length about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. We spend some time discussing the hundreds of years the early church spent developing this doctrine. We discuss what it means practically in our daily lives that God is a Trinitarian God. And we end with a practice that I think you will find helpful in restoring your relationship with the persons of the Trinity. The mics were a little hot in this episode, so I hope you enjoy this slightly heavy metal conversation on Trinity. So, dude, how are you doing? Dude, it's been a trip, man. We missed a week of the show, obviously. Sorry, everyone, because it's been wild. I had to fight a deranged fox with an axe. Was the fox similarly armed? The fox was armed by an invisible supernatural power, perhaps. So. Now, to be clear, the reason that we're a week late is that our families have been sick with, minor, at least multiple rounds of sickness and so on, back to back. Nice way to start the year. Yeah, as well as, I mean, sickness plus the related spiritual warfare, the despair that's rampant at least uh, among the communities that I know. I will say that, like, a little bit begrudgingly, it's been hard and there's been warfare around it, but these weeks of just tucking in with my, with my family, the way it's driven me to prayer and so on, I can't deny that it's been mostly fruitful. So uh, I want these lingering after effects to go away, but if that's what it takes to drive me to more prayer and uh, intimacy with God, I guess... I'll take it. Yeah, dude, this is a real sterling Anthony attribute that kind of gets you close to certain Calvinists, but it's admirable. How dare you put me in proximity <laughs> with, you know, I have friends I love it's, it's who are admirable. Calvinists. It's, it's admirable, dude. I To suffer in union with Christ and to come out feeling like... Uh, whatever form of being under the weather you had was fruitful, that's a great thing. So I'm trying to model my illness after that more often. So as you were saying, you were fighting a fox. Yeah, I, I won, obviously. <laughs> I mean, a, a fox weighs like 25, 30 pounds. So, but this one, this one. This one may have had rabies. <laughs> and if it didn't have rabies, I should have exercised it first but <laughs> oh you exercised it. we fought in the barn it latched onto my cow's nose anyway the story's kind of up in the air right now because the fox is at a state lab and any and i know this now but because rabies is deadly if people get it 100 percent of the time and they don't want it to move through livestock you get to talk to everyone. I'm expecting a call from the president today. For real? Uh, no. <laughs> I've, I've talked to the head of the 
state health department. I've talked to various heads of, you know, cattle associations and agriculture departments and everyone, everyone's taking this very seriously. And, but I have learned this is, this is the best part so far is that the doctor who's managing the case, he and his team are just referring to me as Robin Hood because I <laughs> finished off this fox with a recurve bow. So that's good. <laughs> if they were cooler, they would call you the Green Arrow, but uh, I guess Robin Hood works as well. The, to add to the complexity of this, or the, uh, to make the story more interesting, the cow of yours that got bit by a potentially rabid fox then sneezed in your eyes that night. Yeah. So um, if, if, if Blaine sounds extra edgy today, if he sounds like he's producing more saliva than normal, it's because... Being more aggressive. Yeah, um, it's because he might have rabies right now. I am armed. I'm watching my back. You know, I love you, dude. I love you, dude. I, I, would, I would seek a nonviolent solution first, but uh, you, have, you just have a weird look in your eyes right now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> which is as much to say... <laughs> Which is as much to say, this conversation is not easy to begin. So let's, we're going to tell you what happened. We're beginning a series, hopefully one of the better series that you've ever heard on the story of God. And we'll hit on details of the commissioning of prophets in the divine council before the presence of God, on the dispossession of the nations and the role of the church, on some of the fascinating philosophical questions that are resolved by God being triune. But because we want to be equipped to navigate our time and to thrive in an apocalyptic time, there's no skipping orientation to the story, orientation to Jesus. And the story of God starts in a pretty obvious place, I guess. Yeah, it starts with God. <laughs> and this series, so, so far, in our first few episodes, we have been kind of laying out some of the territory, introducing some categories of conversation, just trying to get people interested in you know, how we see things. But we really can't get very far into this larger conversation that is the Mount Vigil podcast without going back to the doctrine, the, the beauty of the Holy Trinity. The argument that we're making today is that the fact of God as Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, unity and plurality, is the, is the ground of all being, is the ground of all thought and philosophy and theology and understanding. We've talked about things being a story. He is the beginning of the story. Yeah, it all starts with God. And there, we actually debated at length uh, on the following point. There are lots of ways to arrive at an encounter with God after which you become curious about God's nature. That might not sound controversial, but Anthony has an antagonistic personality. <laughs> and so everything is controversial around here. But it's true. People like C.S. Lewis 
were arrived at an encounter with God, recognizing that God was real and had to be known, both through story and through an experience that he called joy, just being struck by transcendence, and by his exposure to a universal moral code that all human beings were failing, yet still felt accountable to. There's this great line in A River Runs Through It, Norman McLean's novella, where he goes, to cast a fly rod is to experience in reality what is true propositionally, that man by nature is a damn mess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good line. So those guys, it was that inroad. A lot of the authors that I grew up reading, including people like G.K. Chesterton, it was all sin. It was all Human beings are so messed up. What is the deal? What's the story that accounts for this? The great like distillation of this perspective, or maybe almost exaggeration of it, would be like a, a Ray Comfort way of the master perspective. At some point in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, I don't know when, you know, this guy would show videos walking down the street, talking to a person, saying, hey, uh, let's agree on some moral you know, moral code. Have you ever violated that? Oh, well, the Bible says that if you have lied, if you're a liar, and since you just admitted that you've lied, if you are a liar, you won't inherit the kingdom. Therefore, you need to be saved. Do you want to be saved? Yeah. Okay, pray this prayer with me. And as, a, as offensive as that might sound to many, the reality is that many people have actually come to Christ through this, like, uh, yes, I am sinful. You are speaking to my 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 conscience. My conscience is aware of my sinfulness. I do need salvation. Give me Jesus. But there are many other ways into the story. And yeah, it's beautiful to me that God will 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 come to us through many different means. For some, it's through an appreciation of beauty and the questions around being and around reality that comes up for a person in that. For some, it's a movie and so on. Encounters with nature. Yes, and for many people, it's the power of Jesus over, it's the authority of Jesus over other spirits, over demons. There's a story in Bob Eckblad's book, A New Kingdom Manifesto, where he's with Heidi Baker. I'm assuming they're in Mozambique because that's where they usually are, and They go to this remote area. They're showing the Jesus film, after which they're going to offer to pray, see the Holy Spirit move, but they know that people are going to leave as soon as the show stops because that's what happens, except that when the show stops, there's a shout in the crowd, and one of the pastors, one of the African pastors who's with them, grabs this snake off the ground, throws it into the lit area at the front of the crowd, and stomps it to death. Now, the crowd knows that this snake was sent by a witch doctor to disrupt the gathering. And his domination of the snake was understood to be what it probably was, which was the power, the superior power of Jesus over the powers of shamans and witch doctors. And everyone stayed to hear (laughs) what is going on. So, you know, similarly, with this potentially rabid fox, you know, one of my neighbors... The inroad with him right now is he's getting the story in. How'd you kill it? I thought you didn't have a firearm on the property. I killed it with a bow. Wow, how many shots does it take? I hit it once, square between the eyes. Wow, is that your bow? It's not even my bow. It's my wife's bow. 
how did you possibly do that? God help me. And <laughs> it, I, uh, and, and there is an expression of the real power of God to save that awakens. It speaks to a person's soul and a person responds and goes, who is this being? Someone is there. There is a power that I need to know. Hmm. Who is it? Which is one of the first questions of the disciple of Jesus. Who the heck are you? Who is the God that you reveal? You know, I think my favorite way to see someone or hear of someone encountering the story of God and uh, with the outcome of their believing it is simply the stories of, yeah, um, they asked a question and I told them the gospel. I kind of summarized the story of God and they said, okay, I believe that. And they, they held on to it. The beauty is such a, a simple, I feel like those people are the most holy amongst us. <laughs> I know that is actually, there's a New Testament template there that's in the letters to the Thessalonian church, which you nerds know are very old, maybe perhaps some of Paul's first. But they say, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And he goes on in this exchange with this church to go, yeah, before we even came to you, the Holy Spirit was preparing you and opening you to understand the gospel of Jesus, to see God for who he is and to become a part of his kingdom. So you're sort of, you explain the gospel and people get it and it's just wonderful. That's sort of a great and ordinary thing, especially because the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus is always active, even among the enemies of God, mm -hmm. preparing them, opening them to, sometimes without any inter human intermediary, directly opening them to Jesus. We give examples of this happening miraculously, in the last episode, talking about a wind in the house of Islam, Muslims raised in a Muslim country being met by Jesus in their dreams. Uh, the person who hears the gospel in a very straightforward manner and receives it, it shows you that, that when you tell someone about Jesus, you're actually presenting Jesus to them, and they can respond. It's, I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious, it's almost tautological, and yet it's, it's miraculous and amazing. And it shows you the power of, like, like, he's really present in you in those stories. So the story, the story begins with God. And the nature of God is a pressing concern. Who is this God? Who is this being? to whom we are relating. I know that you have a fascinating and odd, just your exposure to the Trinity is one of these ways of encountering, of being opened to the gospel. That's fascinating for being a very strange, savant-esque youth. <laughs> what was that story? <laughs> savant. 
Yeah, when I was a kid, I grew up in a, you know, my, my household became a Christian household when I was a child. And I kind of took the whole faith for granted as a, a kid raised that way normally does. At some point, uh, I want to say in the age of like 12 range, and my wife will be annoyed because I, I basically distilled my entire childhood into the year 12 because my memory doesn't work correctly in terms of like, it was this great in this house in this year. So anyways, I think it was around the year, uh, at the age of 12, I just started thinking about God and I basically very quickly reasoned my way to a position that if I had not encountered the doctrine of the Trinity and met God as Trinity, I... Uh, I would have completely abandoned all faith, all belief in God, and become a nihilist of either the optimistic or pessimistic variety, depending on the day. So that position that I reasoned my way to, I just started asking questions like, you know, uh, God, what was his experience like? What, who was he? What, what was he like before he created everything, us? It kind of seems like he would have been, the image I came up with as a, a kid for whatever reason is like, I think, was he just like a white dot on a black sheet of paper? Was he just lonely? And actually a God who is by himself is, seems incredibly sad, honestly pathetic, like no God at all. Well, something's wrong here. Like this doesn't work if God was by himself. Anyways, I just kind of spun round and round about this, and it, it got to be kind of critical for me. I, I never abandoned my faith as a boy because nothing else, you know, there, there wasn't really a better alternative to me at the time. So I, I just kind of coasted, and just as a side note, I recommend this to anyone who's struggling with their faith, that you can struggle through your faith and, or a dark night of the soul or doubts without jumping ship. And wait till you've actually come to some conclusion before doing so. You don't have to make yourself an orphan before you decide that your family is the family you want to stay with, and so on. So, yeah, I, I, I was still you know, a Christian, such as my faith was as a boy, though obviously it was lacking because I didn't know who God was. So anyways, I, 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 it really freaked me out, and I went and talked to my mom. She, uh, yeah, so I went to her, and I was like, Mom, I think I figured something out that if, if it doesn't get fixed, like it basically, it's the, it's the, it's kind of a linchpin that if I pull this out all the way, the entire faith falls apart. Mom, have you ever thought about the fact that God sort of can't be God and that he needs us to be glorious? Did he just create us because he was alone and needed someone to worship him and so on? And she was like, oh, oh, well, those questions make sense until you meet the Trinity. And I was like, I think I've heard this word before, but what do you mean? So it was at that point that she introduced me to the doctrine of the Trinity, and therefore God himself. Father, Son, Spirit, three persons in one God. Unity and plurality in this impossible, nothing else like it in existence, in, in human idea. It's not something that people could invent on their own. This crazy, like the most perhaps contentious, uh, challenging, amazing doctrine of the church. I can't think of anything more miraculous. And it, and it was at that point that I, I could begin to trust God. Dude, you were a strange 12-year-old. <laughs> I did not have this thought when I was 12. 
another time we can dive into that I was always supposed to think about rhetoric and intersubjectivity and performative action because that's what I was concerned with. I was very concerned with the, the sort of uh, psyche swapping potential of human beings and why Freaky Friday wouldn't work and <laughs> because of a field that I later learned the Greeks called teleology. But, okay, so what you did when you were 12 was find something that almost derailed the Christian church. And the way that you know that that is true is the centuries of debate that surround it, that out of which I want to make a couple points. What's so fascinating about the point that you got to, if, if God was like this and he must be like this because he's the all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God, I don't know that I can trust him. That point was raised in the first four centuries of Christianity over and over again because, and in a book called Suffering, a theologian named Arthur McGill goes into this, I think chiefly because our views of God are shaped by our fallen and broken nature, not the other way around. So we think of power in human terms. We think of power in terms of domination almost all the time um, until that worldview is corrected by Jesus. And we think of holiness as apartness. And, and, and what's so fascinating about this is that the logical conclusion, the immediate impressing conclusion of all these positions uh, is a variety of heresies that are extremely destructive to humanity. But in the debates that kind of come to be represented chiefly by a guy, Arius, and a guy, Athanasius, who are both from Alexandria, because when that is where the seat of the church is and where the pope is, that is where all the theological debates take place, they're sort of arguing back and forth about what it meant to be powerful. And Arius had this idea, which many of us have by default, which is, that for God to be perfect, he had to be self-contained and apart. And that any act, any direct connection of God to creation would mean change because creation would be a new thing. It would mean change in the Godhead. And they had to create these very complicated ontological puzzles to solve that issue. And Athanasius, who will, we're about to dive into it. We're going to spend some time with Athanasius the Great. What a name. He, he really did figure this out almost better than anyone. Uh, and Arthur McGill summarizing one of his points to Arius Coe's. Uh, Athanasius points out that any god with the kind of monadic unity and self-sufficient absoluteness that Arius celebrates must be within himself an Agonos Theos, a sterile God. Such a God is not generative, not fecund. In short, he must be dead. He must be a light that does not shine, a fountain that has gone dry, a barren thing. And if within himself he is such an inert and barren Unitarian monad, asks Athanasius, 
then where does he get the creative power to produce the world? That question is amazing. I think the best thing about that quote is that it has the word fecund. And every time I use that word, it drives my wife insane. She hates that word. <laughs> I like that it has monad, which is mostly from Spinoza, who I do not understand very well at all. But most people think of identity and persons as monads, as self-contained things. The, the amazing thing about that quote is, is, is he's saying, if God was not a Trinitarian God effectively, how could anything happen? How could he do anything? And it's, it's a question, another way of asking this question is like the qualities of God. You, hey kids, what is God like? He's good. What does good mean? How could, a, how could a being who's completely by himself be good? Uh, more importantly, like, he's loving. Uh, who did he love before he made all the, all the beings that have to love him if he was by himself? The question goes on and on and on, and you realize that the non-Trinitarian concept of God is self-refuting. And actually, if that was the case, nothing would come into being. Nothing would exist. Everything that you say is good uh, would be impossible. I mean... If, that, if there was like a lever to pull in that direction, you would just undo everything. Yes, yes, yes. Because what people had to not figure out, what they had to believe, because it's what's testified to in the scriptures and testified to by Jesus himself, is that God's power has not been completeness and apartness. It's been the relationships between the persons of the Trinity always, always. So the sun was never a new thing. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. But I know that in human terms, I still think of power as apartness. If I am a powerful man, I don't need to call anyone for help. Now I'm fighting that picture and trying to replace it with one that's informed by the gospel, which is if I'm a powerful man, I'm full of the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus expresses itself in relationship with other people. And we're still afraid, mostly of, as Protestants of the word need. And I think we're getting our, we're sort of inching in that direction by talking about things like interdependence. Fine, call it interdependence. But if I have friends who I actually need, who if they fail, I'll, I'll lack something that will then have to be, that will then be and is directly supplied by Jesus. If I'm like that, I'm a better illustration of generative power than if I were the guy who never has to pick up a phone to ask for help. Mm, that's so beautiful. This, uh, we are kind of almost like beginning with the end of this conversation, which is like, here's an example, the, the one that Blaine just gave, of how to work out uh, an understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity in such a way that it's sort of a practical application in your own life, like change the way that you view, you view your place in a community, in a family, as a dependent person, and, and that's actually you reflecting God. So that, that's a great example of just the endless ways that really like everything that you read in the scriptures that are prescriptive, how to live, ultimately finds its ground in the person of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Going back to the, the topic Blaine introduced, which is the first few hundred years of the church, 
working out the doctrine of God. There's a lot, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot here, um, but there's a few points we want to make to get you interested in, in it and to appreciate some of the, uh, the story of how we all came to be Christians who believe in a Trinitarian God. Where to begin on this? One, one point that I would like to put before you, and it's really helpful as a member of the church. It gives us humility. It's, it's your personal history, and it shows you how important the doctrine of God is. It took the church roughly 350 years to get to a point in history that we could say, now there is an orthodox position that's, that's pretty rounded out and fully fledged on God as Trinity. 350 years, and that number, where I get that, is you know, 30-ish years of Jesus' life. You know, the mission of the church goes on into the book of Acts, his apostles. The Christian church propagates, is established. It becomes the, let's say, Catholic Church, and throughout the duration of this conversation, Catholic will be basically universal. And then eventually the Nicene Creed is uh, established. So the Nicene Creed was established in the early 300s. That isn't the point, though. The point at which I'm saying the Church came to a a conclusion, such as there ever could be on this conversation, is May to July, the year 381, Anno Domini, in which the First Council of Constantinople ratified or uh, confirmed the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed was created, and then another, I don't know, 80 years, depending on exactly when that was. Let's just verify. 325. So the First Council of Nicaea, 325. Any expert in this area will catch us on lots of little specifics, but we're just kind of painting with broad strokes. So let's say Nicene Creed 325, 381, the Nicene Creed is confirmed by the First Council of Constantinople, and that being a keystone moment at which the church, all the church fathers and so on, agreed, yes, this is what we believe. If you deny this, you're not a Christian. It took about 350 years to get there. And there are good reasons for that. Time well spent. (laughs) Yeah, and there are reasons why it took so long. And I'm going to make actually a couple of recommendations here. There are many good podcasts on the history of the church. There's one that just goes to, I think it is, it's either Chalcedon or Constantinople. And so it just covers the first 400 years of Christianity. It's Terry Young's podcast, history of the early church and that's a podcast that like all podcasts it gets better as it goes along by the time it starts talking about the Arian controversy is so fascinating and and it's good there's there's a book the search for the doctrine of god by richard hansen there's a book by lewis ayers that's nicaea nicaea and its legacy and for so for super nerds i know there are a lot of you listening those are those are great resources to know about things to put in your quiver, especially as you begin to fall more in love with Jesus as you see the Trinity, which is something that happens. It is awe-inspiring. To add to that list of resources, if you want to get into this this conversation deeper, read the patristics. Find an early church father and and read what he wrote. Uh, it's, It's incredibly inspiring. It's beautiful. It's humbling. So there were a few trends that are important even into our day uh, to know about that the, that the church was wrestling with that 
I do want to mention here. So one was what we already talked about is that the church had to wrestle with the broken human way of thinking. And it had, there was a lot of work that had to be done to believe the things that Jesus said. You will not be, you have seen how it is among the Gentiles, how people lord power over each other. It won't be that way with you. Whoever wants to be the greatest must take on the nature of a servant. And then you have Paul picking up on that point in the earlier writings and going, uh, though being equal with God, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. There's a lot of ways to paraphrase the point that Paul is making because he's always doing a lot. One of the things is, that's not the right way to th- that, think about it. That's not, Jesus does not think about his equality with God the way that a person in a limited resource depraved environment would think about it. He takes on the nature of a slave being obedient even unto death. Yeah, so another one. You thought the Messiah would come in the manner of a man exercising power, power of a people with swords and weapons. You thought this would be another political revolution, but I'm going to show you what God showing up and exercising power looks like. It's this cruciform path. Right, so if you engage the early Christian writers, the early church, you'll see this thing happen where they do as they work this out, and especially as they're arguing against the detractors, have to fight against faulty axioms. We know that power that perfection means power, and that power is a partner. Oh, well, no, no, that's not true. It's going to take a lot of time to address that. Two other things that are so fascinating. One is, from the very beginning, the church has to fight the one of the many anti-gospels, which is that Gnosticism appears, variations of which have penetrated many, many of the movements that characterize our world. But you have a variety of characters engaging the early church. From within, they're engaging the early church, primarily from within. We're talking about controversies and debate within the church, not just extra church heresies like Gnosticism. This is an important point because it's very instructive for how we live in the church, actually. The church is fighting these uh, parasitic competing narratives that and that are sort of that boiled down to what can be called cosmological dualism, which is the ideal, the idea that there is the wor- the world of the flesh and the world of the spirit, which, by the way, the Greeks go crazy on this point. And be careful. But <laughs> <laughs> nice way to skirt that one. <laughs> I, uh, so it, it's fighting the pull into secret knowledge. It's fighting the pull into esotericism. It's fighting the pull of stories that seem true and are a lot like the Christian story, uh, but are anchored in freaky deceptions. I mean, we talked before about how most of the apocalypses that 
were written down in the Second Temple period are Gnostic apocalypses and are these weird, yeah, not good things. Okay, uh, so you have the gospel versus the parasitic anti-gospels, even inside the church. And then you have Judaism versus itself. And as soon as people grasp this point, I think the lights really do come on for them where, you know, Paul understands himself in terms of continuity of relating to a, a God who has always been triune, who, you know, the embodied person of which ends up being revealed to be Jesus. But there are, it takes a really long time for the church as it relates to the variations of Second Temple culture versus Pharisaical Judaism to figure out what parts of what are actually testified to in the scriptures themselves and how this works. So there's a thing called, you know, the two powers hypothesis all the way back into Second Temple Judaism, which is trying to figure out how the person's I just got that book on my shelf. I cannot wait Alan Segal's book? Yeah. Yeah. That one's fun because Judaism ends up, rabbinical Judaism labels that a heresy. So all the way through, he's calling Christians heretics, <laughs> which, yeah, if you're a rabbinical Jew, a Christian is a heretic. Jesus, please save the rabbinical Jews. Uh, which is a movement that came, that developed in response to Christianity. Yes. But you have depraved patterns of thinking. You have Gnosticism and things like it, just perversions at the very beginning with parasitic power that are introduced and sort of to kind of poison the well. And then you have a movement that is a is expressed in continuity with major elements of Judaism, trying to figure out how to relate to and interpret controversies that already existed for hundreds of years among Jews, a.k.a. Judahites, people who lived in the southern kingdom that was not destroyed. So there was a lot going on. And that last category is the church. Yes. Trying to work out its own path. I think looking into the story of that last group and being the early Christians, the church fathers, the first few hundred years of the church, is it's very humbling, it's very beautiful once you put it in the right perspective, and profoundly instructive for how we live life together now. I remember when, when I first encountered as a kid some clues in regard to the story, like, wait, it took hundreds of years for like some of the most important things about Christianity to be agreed upon? Does that mean that for me, there was a stage of life where like every new thing about Christianity was like, oh man, it's all fake. It's just a human reasoning process or whatever. Like practically everything for a long time would just be like another, ah, that's, that's the thing that, that, dis that invalidates this, this whole story. Anyways, I'm not sure what that was about. Maybe just uh, coming to trust God. Anyways, so the, the first few hundred years within the church, there wasn't a finalized orthodoxy on some of the most important tenets of the faith. And I love that God had grace for that, that he chose to steward his church 
over the course of this few hundred years and really, I mean, to this day, like the grace he has in working with people who are interacting with God, using their reason to, you know, to come to conclusions, their, their scholarship, to interact with the scriptures and their relationship with the Holy Spirit, hopefully, and each other to, to establish the foundation of the faith. It's really amazing. And one side point that I've wanted to make in this discussion is I really believe this is an example of the, the bankruptcy of the doctrine of sola scriptura. <laughs> and as I pejoratively call it, solo scriptura. And the reason why is that so much of the most important content of our faith isn't actually sola scriptura. It is um, one of my favorite, you know, proof texts from the New Testament, from Acts, it seemed to write with the Holy Spirit and with us. That was how they came to uh, decisions about, you know, what to do about whatever, not really their, their theological foundational tenets. But it's incredible to me that the Bible doesn't, doesn't actually straightforwardly say the doctrine of the Trinity. In a meaningful way, it's not in there. Now, in a very meaningful way, it, it's, it's, it's from word one to word last, and it's, the, it, it's there all throughout. But it took human interaction and participation with the Holy Spirit over the course of hundreds of years to figure that out. Yeah, the other way that you know this is true is that the Scriptures are not the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. The Scriptures are the testament to Jesus. And the Word of God is an embodied eternal hypostasis of Yahweh that mm. appears in, across the Old Testament. Preach it. The word of the Lord came to the prophet, which I, al- I read so much growing up in purely abstract terms. Oh, uh, an impartation of wisdom or something. God dropped an idea. And that's just a complicated way of saying God said something. Yeah, without realizing that all of this happens in... <laughs> embodied language, that there is actually a tradition of interpretation that validates this. But it is true. Jesus is the word, both what God has to say and, an, and the expression of divine reason. And, then, and that the word, which most famously and memorably John writes about, riffs on in the beginning of his gospel account, is a character in a who appears across the Old Testament, who they wondered, they wondered who it was. And some of the ways that you know this is true is, look at, there was an Alexandrian contemporary of Jesus, who's a very famous Jewish-Greek philosopher. His name is Philo of Alexandria. And he thought that the embodied person of Yahweh the word and the name and the angel and this guy who appears in all these places. He, he called it the second God and thought it was the archangel Michael. Now, if that were true, there would be no salvation and he was wrong. But you do see the culture itself and the authors and the audience of the scriptures wrestling through how to relate to Jesus and the word and these things. But this was all a response to uh, when, you, when you decide to be a sola scriptura Protestant, you saw off the bra- you literally saw off the branch that you are sitting on because 
Because the words sola scriptura aren't in scripture, it's self-invalidating as a concept. It's an extra-biblical doctrine applied to the Bible, and it probably means different things to different people. We certainly agree that the scriptures are the infallible, inspired word of God, and that every thought or belief of the Christian should be held up against the authority of the scriptures. The reason that we're not solo scriptura is that uh, it's impossible. You have to engage with the church. And in fact, it's, uh, sola scriptura is actually taught against in the scriptures. We see the working out of things in the scriptures, with, like God with man. Another point here in engaging with the early interlocutors with the scriptures, church fathers and other philosophers like in encountering these ideas, is that we should actually have some humility in uh, even with the ones who proved to be heretics. It's really easy to say, like, oh, you know, Arian was stupid, he thought such and such. Um, and that's kind of a, that's an immature approach to engaging with these, these teachers. They loved God, and they uh, were so devoted to the scriptures, more than maybe perhaps like anyone alive today. They were brilliant, and uh, they were working together like dialoguing with each other, often, off, honestly, like fighting in very nasty ways um, with each other. It wasn't all just uh, <laughs> a beautiful discourse. But nonetheless, this was the process by which God worked out the continuing revelation of himself to his people. Yeah, yes. One piece of color commentary on that. Just an, an example to validate the, the posture that you are recommending is... Origin, who's something, who's someone I would like to know more about, which will be possible soon because you and I independently figured out that Father John Baer has a new translation of Origin. Origin is one of those thinkers who gets dismissed as being a heretic. And it's true that no later person that I know, uh, and I'm sort of summarizing Richard Hansen and Terry Young here, uh, adopts all of Origen's ideas. But what you have to know, thank you Richard Hansen, is that Origen is viciously fighting against the Gnostics. So he uses very little or no material language in his accounts and in his descriptions of God. Because he doesn't want to play into a trap that separates God's humanity, the incarnation, from the eternal spiritual existence of God. You know, he's talking about these things that, probably being a heretic right now, uh, they're very hard to talk about. And because he does that, he falls off the balance beam one side or the other on several occasions. Importantly, it shows you the, the humanness of this process. Uh, there's reason to think that a lot of what people think he said was falsely attributed to him by his enemies or people that were perhaps jealous of him, pseudepigraphas and so on. Just as an example, Origen is amazing to me. One, his father was martyred. On the day that his father was martyred, I believe his mother hid his clothes so that he would not go out to be martyred with his father. Such was his passion for like what was happening there. He spends his whole entire life in, in pursuit of truth, the truth of God, establishing almost the discipline of scholarship in the scriptures. And at the end of his life, he himself is imprisoned and tortured for two years straight. 
And then he finally, upon being let go because of a regime change, dies of his sufferings, so effectively was martyred. Yeah, so to look at a man like that and say, and he, and he was a profound genius, to look at a man like that and say, oh, he's a heretic, let's move on, is just, is, <laughs> is so stupid, it's so ignorant, and uh, I delight in the fact that God worked through these people in the history of our church. I think the most simple explanation of the Holy Trinity is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. To nail the technical grammar of conversations around the Trinity in a way that is perfectly satisfactory to a person that is, let's say, an expert in philosophy and theology of the Trinity is pretty challenging, and we're almost certainly going to trip up somewhere here. And that's not to give us a trepidatious, fearful posture in relating to the Holy Trinity, who I think is profoundly delightful and joyous and creative and amazing and, and full of grace and compassion and patience. It is to give us a sense of the holiness of God and the profound importance of this doctrine. So we can play and enjoy this conversation while also realizing it's so important that the very the nuances of grammar in which one tries to say truths about the Trinity are critical, and it's very easy to slip into to heresy at the same time. So we can hold those two postures in tension. Let's say a childlike, boldly approaching the throne of the Trinitarian God, and uh, let's say thrones, and, uh, and a reverential, I don't want to screw this up. Yes, so you, because of your passion for the Athanasian Creed, and because of the importance of the Athanasian Creed, have suggested that the best way to go about this next part of the conversation is going through the whole thing, which we have agreed upon if we're allowed to interrupt and tell stories. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. Yeah, so the Athanasian Creed, it's, it's called the Athanasian Creed, but there's reason to believe it was, it was more of the product of a council of his time. Um, he may have been the leader of it and so on. Regardless, the Athanasian Creed is, for me, right up there with the Nicene Creed as being one of the most important, as perfect as humans are capable of, distillations of, again, one of the most important doctrines, grounds of, of understanding and reality and being that we can think of. I love to think of the relationships between these characters, and I think that a great film would be that in uh, right around the time of the Council of Nicaea, as the during the church's search for the doctrine of God, while you know the Arianism is sort of becoming a thing, mo their most influential people. Eusebius of Caesarea, who I very much like, uh, for example, were really focusing on the individuality of the persons. And then these two voices emerged who focused on the unity of God. And one was your, your 19th Pope, Alexander of Alexandria. The other was the bishop, his buddy, Athanasius of Alexandria. These men were friends who knew each other, who lived and worked in the same city. Uh, and Alexander was able to, in the broadest possible terms, sort of capture important attributes of God's nature. Athanasius had sort of this brilliant uh, ability to see the fault lines, see where problems would emerge and sort of shore up the holes. But 
I would I want to see a movie that is the relationship between those two men and how at a absolutely key time for the church they worked together to not lose to preserve and to cohere the knowledge of the triune god all right moving on and if you want to sound really learned you can refer to alexander of alexandria as alexandria um that's you know those in the know say it that way (laughs) is that true no, it's totally not true, but I was tempted to leave it in there and just see how many people get embarrassed. Trying <laughs> to have conversations. Um, all right, dad jokes. So, <laughs> oh yeah. So again, another preamble, uh, another bullet point to the preamble here is you, you bring up a very important two poles in the dialectic of. Uh, it really is like the best dialectic, actually, the one that doesn't result in everything being obliterated and nothingness, but actually the Trinity, which is this: these two poles being unity and plurality. And so much of what's happening in the few first hundred years with this debate can be lumped into these two sides. People are saying, wait, but wait, you know, they're, they're different persons. And others are saying, but wait, God is one, and so on. And I'm going to commit a super gross simplification by saying, you could kind of summarize the whole debate searching for the doctrine of God in that way. So here goes the Athanasian Creed. Whoever wants to be saved should above all cling to the Catholic faith. As we said, Catholic is universal. Whoever does not guard it whole and inviolable will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. I love that one God in Trinity, Trinity is, under, is lowercase, and the Trinity is capitalized. So it's almost like an adjective then, going, then referring to the person or the, the, the being. That's right. I have no idea if that's in the original language though. This is a translation. What they're trying to capture there is from complicated grammatical forms. Persons. We almost started reading the Athanasian Creed and getting some, some length into it, one sentence into it, without saying uh, how persons relates to hypostases. And, and you know what's interesting on this point? And the hypostases being a spiritual body. Yeah. The other spiritual powers, evidently, as, you know, look at Baal worship, look at the construction of basically of the Apis bull-inspired golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, is that the gods of the pagans can have an unlimited number of hypostases. Now, you, in an earlier episode, pointed out that Neil Gaiman is a good example of a committed pagan, and in his book, American Gods, he nails this idea where the real pagan gods can have an infinite number of real hypostases that are created by communities that worship them around the world. He does this in a very sinister way with Jesus himself, where at this Easter celebration, there's basically endless hypostases of Jesus, you know, the the Pentecostal one, the Catholic one, et cetera, et cetera, which is, you know, uh, evil ultimately. (laughs) Anyways, it it just shows you his understanding of of what's happening here. For a technical treatment of this, I will recommend our buddy. He doesn't know us. (laughs) (laughs) Our friend who does not know us, uh, 
Father Stephen DeYoung's book, he gets into this in The Religion of the Apostles on uh, the fact that in the classical Greek philosophy, there, there's not a concrete use of hypostases as persons. It doesn't refer to just one kind of concept. That was another early church obstacle. But it was like, okay, so in the pagan religions, you can have an infinite number of hypostases, and you can create one. And how this works, maybe we don't need to get into. And But when it comes to the Trinity being so unique is that there are three and only three and that they are eternal. And that when it goes to, oh, cool, so the Son is begotten of the Father. When did God make another hypostasis of himself? Uh, never, because the Son was eternally begotten, has always been begotten of the Father. They're all always there. So, you know, if you're the church answering very complicated questions out of the two powers hypothesis in Judaism, hello nerds, you're going to end up mostly lumping the embodied hypostases of God, which they are in the Old Testament into Jesus. Uh, and there is good reason to do that. That's persons. All right, let's go on. Let's see if we can get like three or four sentences. I won't interrupt. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father. Uncreated is the Son. Uncreated is the Spirit. Funny story about the Gnostics. (laughs) (laughs) The Gnostics say that Jesus was the first creation of God. Some of them do. Just to be clear, we know that Gnosticism, one, is oversimplification of a vast plurality of religions and of philosophies. So we're talking you know, about the early Gnostics that cared about Christianity at all. Yes, for whom the pleroma is not a dove. So send us an email if you got that joke. These guys had such sophisticated conceptions of time that they realized that for creation to take place, you had to have a moment before which you would have to have another kind of thing. Even Bonhoeffer in his Notes on Creation picks up on this point and riffs on it in a very Bonhoeffer way. But they go, the Father created Jesus first before there was time, and then time became a thing in this. And... In an attempt to answer this, you have one of the most interesting heresies that never becomes mainstream, but it's what a guy who I also would like to know more about, Methodius, says, which is that creation is, that there's, creation is eternal, and that somehow that creation has to exist alongside or in, or he, he's not really particular with his prepositions, uh, Again, missing the point that creation is an event, but that is a continuity out of God's always generative self-giving life. Okay, so this is helpful because it it adds a third pole that comes up for me a lot as I'm looking at the early controversies and dialogue and striving for truth on the doctrine of God, which is time. And so much... So we had plurality as opposed to 
uh, unity and working that out into a beautiful understanding of Trinity, we also had time. And so, so, so much of, the, of why it took hundreds of years and why it's very difficult to talk about now is that our brains melt when we try to talk about God existing out of time. And it really just gets beyond human comprehension, which isn't to say we shouldn't attempt to solidify some things or avoid her- heresies, but... Yeah, beyond human comprehension, probably not beyond worshipful, sanctified imagination. I have read too many books by theologians who I really like, who say that we cannot conceive of the post-resurrection existence because certain dimensions of space-time have to be different. And while in a philosophical sense, he's right— He's, he's wrong in that he's not encouraging people to take hold of the images of the restoration of all things. This is so important, and I, I truly do hate that thick Constinian approach to theology, which is using rules of language that can prove that we can't go there, therefore we must not speak of that which we can't speak. It's a non-starter, and it basically denies an important way of relating to God, which you might describe what you just said as the poetic meditating on the beauty, meditating on that, which is really beyond our comprehension. But we can actually engage with that God, and, and uh, it is fruitful. It's beautiful. Yeah, and because also God has come to reside in us by the Holy Spirit, we also have a substance that can understand and experience these things. Yeah, and to say it's beyond comprehension might be to say specifically that the powers of rationality only get you so far in thinking about a God who is outside of time and outside of his own creation. Yeah. While it is very important, you know, I said to think about eternity to come, it's also important to have a picture of eternity past. Otherwise, you just have this black wall of rationality onto which suddenly creation appears, or suddenly you just have Genesis 1. And that's going to take you all kinds of terrible and destructive places. Rationality by itself only can take a person to nihilism. But you should have a picture of the eternal trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this dynamic interplay in eternity past that is a moving and a swift and an adventurous fellowship. So moving on to the creed. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, eternal is the Spirit. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. As there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son, Almighty is the Spirit. And yet, there are not three Almighty beings, but one who is Almighty. Yes, Athanasius is going to riff multiple times in this creed on Old Testament language for God, and clarify questions that existed for the church on who those people were. So the Almighty is the El Shaddai. He's going he's gonna to get to Lord soon, I think. Yeah, that's uh, three pair. No, two stanzas later. Thus, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord. The Son is Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Sorry, Mormons. (laughs) As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God 
and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. I don't know about you, but I find these meditations to be luminous. They're so beautiful. Uh, I can't recommend enough to you, listener, to pull up a copy of the Athanasian Creed and meditate on this. It's what it does for the soul, encountering the beauty of these words and the beauty of these truths. It's incredible. It's incredibly restorative. It's healing. And it, it shapes us. It shapes the person to spend time meditating on the beauty of God. What, what? Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits. And in this trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other. But all three persons are in themselves co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. This raises perhaps a fourth polarity or point of distinction as the, you know, the early church tried to figure out what was what. And that has to do with who's superior. Are they co-eternal and co-equal? Was, you know, going back to time, was one there first? Who was there first? How could, the, how could Jesus be begotten? How could he be a son without being subservient to the Father? And actually in the scriptures there is this sense of he looks up to the Father and yet the Father elevates him and there's this beautiful upward spiral of like elevating each other, celebrating each other. Anyways, uh, co-equal was, was one of the big points of, of argument of like this really matters and how we understand. Yes, it does. And so you'll find people saying, and they're not wrong, that the son being begotten of the father means that the son is dependent on the father. And so it, it's so easy to take one more step and go, wait a second, and go, but equal to, and also let's remember one of our key points, which is that they give themselves away. There is offering and offering. And so when you run into something that's so fascinating, fascinating and challenging for centuries of people to sort of get their minds around, get their heart around and go, wait, okay, so they're... Is a, and then so the sun must be kind of like a second thing, and you're like, oh no, sorry, just for now, take it from us. The and by us, I don't mean us, us, I'm being like the voices of the early church right now who say they are not greater or lesser than each other. Uh, there's something that there's something that Jesus does. I love that uh, you know, this happens in. Matthew, where he responds to the scribes and Pharisees, and he tells them, go and learn the meaning of this verse. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and leaves them with that. What a wonderful, kind, educational tool. And we can relate to some of these things by being told by our ancestors who really care about us and wanted it to go well for us, go and learn what this means. Go and contemplate what this means. No one is before or after greater or less than the other. That thought is a wonderful segue into the next line, which is, whoever wants to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. And I would add, or just riff on this by saying, not just think thus as in think accordingly to this creed, but you should think 
about the Trinity. You should meditate on God as God. It, it's kind of your whole raison d'etre. I'm sorry, it sounded like you had some phlegm in your mouth. <laughs> it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also faithfully believe that our Lord Jesus Christ became flesh. For this is the true faith that we believe and confess, that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man. He is God, begotten before all worlds from the being of the Father, and he is man, born in the world from the being of his mother, existing fully as God and fully as man with a rational soul and a human body, equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not divided but is one Christ. No docetism, no Arianism. He is united because God has taken humanity into himself. He does not transform deity into humanity. He is completely one in the unity of his person without confusing his natures. For as the rational soul and body are one person, so the one Christ is God and man. He suffered death for our salvation. He descended into hell and rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people shall rise bodily to give an account of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing this firmly and faithfully. So let's say that someone heard that and is just confused and disoriented. What should that person do? It's a great question. One, it's okay. This, if it took the most brilliant leaders of the church hundreds of years to come to some sort of resting place in this understanding, you don't need to suddenly get it all at once. And, and get it all at once is not even like a conceivable possible outcome. There's infinite depth and mystery uh, and, and something worth contemplating into eternity, literally, that we're trying to reach at with these words. So that's my first encouragement. Uh, I would also say don't try to work it all out in your own head. You'll go crazy and you might wind up in places that are not beneficial. Find trustworthy mothers and fathers in your own life, in your own church, etc., who can counsel you and be a spiritual guide for you, a spiritual director for you. If you're just now for the first time encountering the doctrine, the being of the Trinity, do not attempt that alone. It's, it's sort of a an anti-Trinitarian way of, of, of encountering Trinity, actually, being by yourself. Yeah, I think that in some of the the takeaways, some of the recommendations uh, would be to ask yourself which of the persons of the Trinity you are least comfortable relating with. Uh, because while it is in one of these odd wonderful things, accurate to say, listen, if you have Jesus, you're getting everyone because of the unity of God. It doesn't negate that to say there are riches available in the persons of the Trinity that we desperately need. We need Christ, our brother. We need all the things. We need Christ, our high priest. 
We need a prophetic king. We need an advocate before the Father. There are so many things that Jesus does that we need to take hold of. Then the Father, oh my goodness, do we desperately need the strength and the security and the care and the stability of being that the Father provides and to ask and to uh, discover how to see and relate with the Father that Jesus related with, to, to, know, to know God in our, in our very in, in most persons of our being that way. And then the person who, at least here in the Protestant West, I've found most people least comfortable with most of the time, the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Ghost, what does that what does that person of the Trinity do? And where is he? And what's the theophanic glory cloud? And <laughs> why, if the ceiling is gold, that's good. Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> and uh, and what are some of the things that are wonderful because the Holy Spirit proceeds? from the Father and the Son? What is the way that we need to live life? What is the way that we need a counselor and a comforter and someone to show us Jesus? We need, we really do need to grow into relating with this, Tim Mackey calls it a loving community. I think that's a great phrase. We need to grow in relating with this loving community. That's beautiful. Whatever dissonance or discomfort you encounter with any particular person of the Trinity is also very instructive and, uh, and can be a wonderful vector of ministry of God to your heart. So just, just as a more obvious example, let's say you're perfectly fine engaging with praying to talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but every time the Father comes up, there's just this angry bearded man in the sky in your mind, or just darkness, or condemnation, or whatever. Um, God wants to meet you there, where perhaps your earthly father made you feel this way. There's all kinds of personal life stories, agreements, wounds, abuses, trauma, etc., that you've uh, received, encountered, experienced, that Rather than, than getting stressed out about the fact that you might have uh, distrust, discomfort, uh, revulsion even to like a, a member of the Trinity, God wants to meet you there and, and, and minister to your heart. You were designed to encounter the Holy Trinity in a way that is fruitful, that gives you peace and all the fruits of the Spirit actually. Something that I will put out there very humbly, because I think that Athanasius and his crew, I look up to them. We've had this conversation, uh, Blaine, you and I have had this conversation, this kind of conversation around the Nicene Creed as well, as you like to insistently say the Nicene Creed. I'll never say that, it's just not as pretty. You don't think so? I think it sounds better. No. The soft sea, whatever you would call that, I think is much more beautiful. That's because you are a native English speaker, which is a slithery language. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you just called me a serpent, and that's why I prefer a nice scene. As... 
Anyways, okay, getting distracted here. So we've had this kind of conversation about the Nicene Creed as well and about the Athanasian Creed. I'll say all these creeds are not themselves the inspired word of God. They're not scripture itself, and they're not the word of God as in Jesus. They are, um, but they are very important. They they are, since we are not sola scriptura people, they are, they hold important doctrines that we should really submit to. And yet we can also struggle with them. The, the point of struggle I have with the Athanasian Creed is this, uh, you know, third to last line, those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. There's at least three points of contention that come up in my heart when I encounter that line, both in terms of soteriology, doing good or doing evil, and eternal fire. I'm pretty sure, well, anyways, I have, I have complex, let's say, nuanced uh, thoughts that are you know, still developing on the doctrine of hell and so on. You can actually find lines like those who have done good and those who have done evil in the scriptures, though. Anyways, I won't say this line is wrong, but that if, if again, if encountering this creed, if you, listener, come to that point and you're like, oh, you lost me, you can still, first of all, engage with the entire, the majority of what this creed shares, which is an understanding of the Trinity. And uh, it's good to struggle. Like, yeah, I mean, second to the Holy Trinity and maybe third after who is Jesus is in terms of points of struggle for Christians to this day and until Jesus returns would be soteriology and hell. They're, they're very difficult and gnarly uh, doctrines. They're also beautiful and good. So it's all part of the good news. It's a long-winded way of saying it's okay to struggle with these creeds. Yeah, I love that. I do like this point because it keeps coming up, which is that the creeds are hugely important and, and are real handrails of wow, here is what the church has found. You cannot think any th- on these things. You, you cannot disagree with these things and still say that you are confessing Jesus as Lord as a Christian. And that's true. Now, but, you know, for example, the Nicene Creed does not also tell you how to live your whole life. It doesn't directly teach you how to pray. People could argue, and I think accurately, yes, of course it does, which is a little bit of what we're saying right now, which is that you can learn everything you need to know. Everything that you need to know comes out of the reality of the triune God. However, there's there's a kind of, uh, well, God has given us more than that. We have the rest of the scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the consensus of the saints. And there is a lot in the Bible on how to be a disciple of Jesus, how to engage warfare, how to repent, how to view our humanity, how to grow in love, how to shape our lives in community. It's okay to struggle and to work through those creeds. The flip side point of that for me is, great, you totally get them. First of all, I just highly doubt that because I'm telling you as a person who has spent, honestly, not very much time, let's call it a little more than the last decade, really trying to, like, to push into this to see Jesus. There's just so much to be mined there and so much that I keep getting. But let's say you already love it and you're good. There's more to know 
about life and God's kingdom. And you're, you're very familiar with this distinction of the kerygma and the didache and the, the gospel itself, the, the euangelion, the work of Jesus to save, and the way of the apostles, the kind of what we would call in philosophy praxicological, the practice of working out a life that yields the fruit of belief. I hope that nobody's brain is melted because the point of contemplating the Trinity is the restoration of our humanity, is relief in a hard time. And some of these things need to be identified and unpacked together. Let me start with one. There is a writer who I do like, Esther Meek. She writes about a thing called covenant epistemology. The, she, the title of one of her books is Loving to Know. And what that means is that because the Trinity exists as a loving community of persons, if you want to understand the Trinity and receive what's available in the Trinity, you relate with and love God and love the persons of the Trinity. If you want to understand God, relate with God and, 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 and expect to relate with a person. Our church is intentionally meditating on and praying through a psalm a week this year. And some of the fruit of that that's just been fascinating to me has been the psalmist's various expectations in relationship. Psalm 13, you know, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? And then there is this demand, turn and answer me. And my January was no fun. And it felt very heavy the whole time. And I did not have very many experiences of the love or presence of God. And it was hard for me not to take that into despair and just check out, go into survival, a.k.a. slow death mode, and wait for things to be different. Rather than pushing in and rolling in that psalm and going, Jesus, turn and answer me. I need you to get through to me. Get through to me. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has this funny aside about people who take the bus ride from hell to heaven to look around who come just to yell <laughs> at God or to yell at the saints. And the narrator observes that many of the people who come to yell are far closer Mm. to have it to repenting than those who come with their hands in their pockets to look around like a stoic resigned to all things. So God is a person to relate with. I hope you've heard this, not a subject to read about, not a creed to confess. At the basis of our humanity, at the basis of our thriving is relating with, talking to, experiencing back and forth with God and all of our understanding of what is the Father like. You know, 
it sometimes has to originate in good conviction that opens the space where we'd actually relate to the Father. But we're going to learn the Father's nature by actively and immediately relating to the Father. That's so good. Yeah, our encouragement is not to reduce your interaction, your encounter with God to a set of philosophical presuppositions, a set of philosophical statements, and to try and master those. Um, The point of this conversation is to encounter the living God. Our God is not the Aristotelian unmoved mover. He is personal. He is described with emotional words in the scriptures. He interacts with us. He romances. Yeah, he is love. There's a passage in a book, The Christian Doctrine of God, One Being Three Persons by Thomas Torrance. I wanted to read to this effect. He says, Just as we can never go behind God's saving and revealing acts in Jesus Christ and in the mission of his Spirit, so we can never think or speak of him truly apart from his revealing and saving acts behind the back of Jesus Christ, for there is no other God. It is, of course, because God actively loves us and actually loves us so much that he has given us his only son to be the savior of the world, that he reveals himself to us as the loving one and as he whose love belongs to his innermost being as God. If he were not love in his innermost being, his love toward us in Christ and the Holy Spirit would be ontologically groundless. God is who he is as he who loves us with his very being. He whose loving is as inexhaustible as his infinite being, for his love is his being in ceaseless triune movement and activity. It is precisely as this living, loving, and acting God that he has come to us in Jesus Christ and unites us to himself by his one spirit, interacting with us in creation and history and in our human and physical existence in time and space, all in order to be our God and to have us for his people. It is thus that we understand why Christians believe the God and Father of Jesus Christ to be the one and only God and Savior of the world. He is not different in himself from what he is in the activity of his saving and redeeming love in the singularity of the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The God who is loving and saving us has once for all given his very self to us in his Son and in his Spirit and who in giving himself freely and unreservedly to us, gives us with him all things. It is in the cross of Christ that the utterly astonishing nature of the love that God is has been fully disclosed. For in refusing to spare his own son, whom he delivered up for us all, God has revealed that he loves us more than he loves himself. And so it is in the cross of Jesus Christ, above all, that God has both exhibited the very nature of his being as love, and has irrevocably committed his being to relationship with us in unconditional love. In Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit, we know and believe that there is no other God for us than this God, who freely seeks and creates fellowship with us, utterly undeserving sinners though we are. Dude, that is so heavy duty. A short way of saying that is that God is love, and he really wants relationship with you, and he gives himself he pours himself out for you. 
It is good for the formation of the soul. It's good for the formation of your mind to contemplate the, the various statements of the Athanasian Creed. God is not a doctrine or a philosophical concept just to be set on a shelf and to be gotten right. He is a being to encounter mystically, immediately. Woof. Another recommendation here for a hard time, a time that's hard on the soul in particular, would be, yes, as relational beings who find ourselves relating with God and then relating inside his people, there are some very practical ramifications for how we deal with isolation, how we deal with suffering, how we... And it is almost as simple as don't isolate, were that it were that easy, were that it were so simple. But we go, hey, you want to experience God? Another legitimate way to do that is through his people. There's not enough time to make this full side note, but many of the individuals who represent God in the story of the Bible do so so well, they become indistinguishable. So it's easy to see where God says to Moses twice, at the beginning of the Exodus narrative, you shall be as God to Pharaoh. Aaron is your prophet. And there's this, whoa, 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 wait. Okay, so here's another way that God is available in the people who know him, which is why, by the way, preppers in isolation are so laughable because that is a bad way to be human, to be a person. It's why... Our work in responding to a difficult time needs to be born out of love for real people who we spend our time with. And I'm finding, actually, how much making basic moves to invite people into my difficulty is stoking, shoring up, and providing relief to my soul in these times. For a long time, I really thought that for a person... This is embarrassing to admit, but I thought that for a person to be helpful to me, they had to be a prayer expert or super wise or the world's best therapist. What I didn't know is that all they need, those things are good. It's great to have and important to have qualified, experienced elders in our lives. Ask God to bring them. I mean, we pray for God to bring more older people into our church all the time. Uh, but they really just need to be a person. And as I have sort of invited a wider range of people into how I'm doing to talk something through, I've just kind of been shocked by how well it works. Like, hi, you, friend I've known for a while who I wouldn't normally talk about this. Would you help me just like talk something through and, and tell me what you notice? And there's a, a, there's a lot of failure. A lot of the time, it doesn't go well. But a lot of the time it does, and it's so, so, so helpful. I am learning to call people for prayer as often as I text and ask for prayer. This habit, which also feels obvious, has been so helpful. It took me a while to get to the place where I would work through the shame of not being able to handle my life on my own, to actually text you and Josh and John Mark and Tim and, and real people to go, would you pray for me? I'm kind of having a hard day. And that's been fruitful. It has been 
I feel like it has gotten even better over the past year as where I've had space, I've gone, I am just going to call one of the guys who I would ask to pray for me to go, man, do you have a second? I am under it today. And talk a little bit, pray on the phone, but in actually relating with a person who can also represent God to me, there is so much relief to be had. That's beautiful. It's like, I really need to encounter God who is here to show me God. As a, a little Easter egg of a recommendation, if you haven't read it already, the essay, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, is a wonderful invitation into seeing people in this way. Yeah, so there is an endless amount to say about how our encounter with the Holy Trinity works this way out in our lives. It affects everything, our philosophy, our political theology and philosophy, our relationship with ourselves, our spouse, our children, our life and family, our life in the church, our understanding of anything at all. And we're not going to say it all here. So one thing that we'd like to leave you with is a practice. We talked earlier about how you may encounter blocks or dissonance, um, relational divisions between you and a particular person of the Trinity. We talked about how your relationship with your earthly father, something traumatic that happened in your life, might result in an, an agreement or a judgment against the person of the Holy Trinity. Or maybe you just haven't been introduced and gotten time to know each other intimately. So here's a practice in regards to that possibility. Step one, right now, pause and just look to God. And in your spirit, in your prayer, just see if any division between you and one member of the Trinity, one person of the Trinity, comes up. It might be your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's like, oh yeah, when I think about the Holy Spirit, I feel anxiety, for instance. Okay, just let that surface. Step two, ask God for mercy. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Ask him to meet you there and tell you about that. Holy Spirit, when I think about you, I feel anxiety. Um, why is that? What's going on? Um, yeah, and then just listen. It might not be everything in regards to your relationship with that person, but maybe God wants to go after a particular judgment, a particular belief, um, agreement, whatever. The next step is... Go ahead and repent of any agreements or judgments against that person of the Trinity that comes up. So with the example of the Holy Spirit, maybe it's, Holy Spirit, I have a judgment that you are not trustworthy because you seem wild and unpredictable, and I've seen people do crazy things in, um, in your name, and so I'm scared of you. I repent of the belief that you are not trustworthy. I... I ask you to restore my relationship with you. Next step is to forgive that person of the Trinity as necessary. And you don't have to freak out about that idea. God is perfect and is always related to you in love. But if you hold judgments against that person of the Trinity, whether or not they are justified, you still need to forgive and turn those things over. So Holy Spirit, I 
I forgive you. <laughs> I, uh, I release my judgments against you that you have not been trustworthy. And the final step is to receive the love of God there, to intimately encounter that person of the Trinity, to just love them, to receive their ministry, to receive whatever words that person of the Trinity has for you. And that's it. That was good, dude. I was, I was tracking. I was working through just some re, letting some recent disappointment with the Father surface because my life feels so demanding right now, and it has felt so difficult to experience, receive, see a strength that is greater than me that is on my side helping orchestrate and navigate, helping me live my life. So that was a great practice. Now, friends, I'd like to invite you again, remind you that mountvigil.org is the website. There are blogs to read. There will eventually be videos to watch. There are newsletters and emails to receive. But go that way. And again, if you have a weird nerd, Jesus-loving friend, or other odd person, hello, our odd people, who would like this episode, invite them in, bring them into the tribe, share the episode with them. That would uh, hopefully be a gift to them, and it would help this podcast get out there. And we'll leave you with the words of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Goodbye, Jesus, coming back again. Oh, he's coming, he's coming after his own. Oh, he's coming, he's coming after his own.